all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason, you. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Southern Remedy Kids and Teens and MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Morgan McLeod, Assistant Professor of Pediatrics and Internal Medicine at UMMC. About 2.2 million people swallow or have contact with a poisonous substance each year. And with summertime right around the corner, there's going to be lots of different types of exposures for our kids, teens, and adults as well. So today we have Dr. Brett Marlin and Dr. Kristen Wright on with us. They work for the Poison Control and are going to be talking with us today about what to do if you encounter one of these situations. If you have any questions or comments for them, we would love to hear from you. Give us a call this morning at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or you can always send us an email as well to kids at mpbonline.org. So good morning. I have Dr. Wright is in studio with us, and Dr. Marlin, I, I, sh- I think, is on the line. Or, are you there? I'm there. All right. Thanks so much for y'all coming on with us this morning. I appreciate it. We really appreciate the opportunity to be here. So thank you for having us both. Yeah, thank you very much. All right. Well, y'all start with just telling us a little bit about what poison control does um, and then also about a little bit about what each of y'all do with your job at poison control. So the Mississippi Poison Control Center is a 24-7 call center that's staffed mainly by nurses. Um, And then we also have a nurse practitioner and a pharmacist. And we basically provide recommendations on a wide range um, of exposures and, and various questions that we get. Um, we're one of the uh, one of 55 poison centers in the United States, um, so we do serve the state of Mississippi and take all the calls that come in through the 1-800 number, which is 1-800-222-1222. Um, we've also we are overseen by two medical toxicologists who are also ER physicians. So that's Dr. Brett Marlin; he's one of those, and then we're managed also by a nurse practitioner. Um, we all have family members and a lot of us have kids as well. So we're very familiar with how easily things can happen and how scary that can be when family members or kids get in a situation where we don't know what the next best step is. Yeah. So I'm sure y'all stay busy, especially in the summertime. And, um, one thing I don't think a lot of people probably know too, is that even the ERs throughout the state work with y'all. Um, so when I rotated through as a resident in my training process, I mean, that's what we would do. We would call the poison control to help us uh, if a kid came in and was ingested. So y'all, I know y'all stay very busy. We definitely do. Um, and Dr. Marlin um, does actually staff the UMC ER. So he sees a lot of these patients, um, especially if they come into our ER and also talks with physicians around the state. Um, so we we do see a, a ton of calls. We see about 16,000 a year. Um, so we are there 24-7 and, and answering 
probably 50, about 50 per day. Um, so no question is too small for us. If, if you're concerned about a child or, or an adult or grandmother who may have gotten into something. So we talked a little bit about what some big topics is that y'all see this summertime. Um, so we're going to get into a little bit of that. I know a lot of people always have questions about snake bites, spider bites, um, all that type of thing. So we're going to definitely talk about that. But there's some other things that uh, we had mentioned uh, or that Dr. Wright had mentioned to me that they see a lot of in the summertime, uh, such as like chlorine tabs, tiki torch oil, that type of thing, kind of fireworks, things that, you know, are happening all the time, and especially with Memorial Day a couple of weeks away. Um, we know that a lot of people are probably going to be celebrating around the pools, possibly even have some fireworks. So we're going to talk a little bit about that as well. If you have any questions for them, we would love to hear from you. Give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. 672 So before we get into the summer things, just since poison control, I mean, the main thing I think about is medicines. Um, and so, uh, Dr. Marlin, when somebody calls to talk to the poison control about they think their kid may have gotten into a medication, what are some of the things that they need to know when they call the poison control? Yeah, so the more information, the better. I mean, obviously, that's, that's not always possible. Um, but I think some of the things we try to do from the from when we get calls from the public is to risk stratify the exposure and determine whether or not that that individual needs to be seen um, by a physician like immediately. Um, and so like, you know, what vacation was it? Uh, what, if it's not a medication, what item was it? What does the label say? What are the active ingredients? How much did they take to the best of your ability to judge that? I know with, with kids, it's, it's very difficult a lot of time. Um, so the more information we can get, the more informed we are, and the better we can kind of direct care from that point. Um, in general, if, if it's a product that we can't get good amounts uh, that were ingested, but, you know, it's a, it's a product that can cause problems, we always err on the side of um, being more conservative and having them come in and evaluated than, uh, than not. But the more information, the better. Yeah. And I just want to add to that, that, you know, we get some callers who are worried about um, calling and saying their kid got into something and how that reflects on them. And I think it's important for people to know that we don't report these calls. These are confidential calls. They're they're covered by HIPAA. Um, I mean, we, we truly are just trying to do the best for your kid or your family member. Um, and so, you know, we do ask several questions. We will collect your name um, and, and, you know, ask maybe a past medical history. And all of that just goes into us deciding how we're going to best treat or, or what we're going to recommend. Um, and then if we do decide that the best place for you to be treated is in an emergency department, we will call the ER just to help streamline that and, and let them know, hey, we did recommend that you come in and, and why and what we recommend that they do for you. Yeah, it can happen to anybody. <laughs> Um, get kids getting into it because I mean you know especially with a toddler you turn your back for two seconds and they've already destroyed your house so I mean they can and they're so sneaky and they climb up up on things so even if you think you have it put away in an upper cabinet I mean they find ways to get up there so it it definitely doesn't reflect on your parenting if they get into it Um, I feel like a lot of times it happens at the grandparents house too just because the grandparents are not used to having the children 
there. And so they may not have everything as baby proof. So I always try to talk to the parents about that at their checkups and grandparents out there listening. That's something to remember that, you know, just because they're not there all the time, you still have to make sure you have your house baby proofed. But we've got our first caller. So we will go to Craig. He's in Biloxi. Good morning, Craig. Uh, good morning. I was wondering if activated charcoal is a good thing to have on hand. And uh, if, if, someone does ingest some something is a good thing to dilute it like drinking a lot of water or something or what kind of procedure should you do um yeah so we we generally i generally would not recommend activated charcoal uh, until like ems arrives until emergency medical services are there and they can communicate with us strictly because uh, activated charcoal one doesn't bind to everything, so there are there are several things that it, it won't bind to or be ineffective at. And two, anytime you're dealing with like household products, it could be a caustic or have an injury uh, to the throat, <clears throat> to the esophagus. Uh, we don't like activated charcoal because when they go and look, uh, we don't we can't see very much because of all that charcoal. An additional problem is certain medications can make you seize or make you unconscious. And if you were to uh, basically breathe in that activated charcoal, uh, you can get a pretty bad lung injury um, on top of the other uh, drug effects. For some things, we do recommend dilution. Um, you know, drinking water uh, for certain products, um, that just depends on the product, um, the time of ingestion, um, and the time to, to get into a facility. And just to piggyback off of that, um, Craig, it was a great question. Um, we get a lot of questions, too, or even callers who will call and say that they've already made their child throw up and tried to stick a finger down their throat. There are a lot of substances that it's safer just to go ahead, let them pass. If needed, we recommend activated charcoal. Um, but we, we don't recommend that you induce vomiting either until you call us. And, and really, frankly, we never recommend inducing vomiting. Okay, thank you. Yeah, thank you for that call. Yeah, That's a great question. That's a great question. All right. Well, we're going to continue our talks with uh, Dr. Marlin and Dr. Wright. Like I said, they are from the Poison Control Center. And so if you have any questions for them, we would love to hear from you. Please give us a call this morning at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 672 7464 We'll take a quick break and then we'll continue talking about some of the things you may encounter this summer, some situations that may require the poison control. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This 
This is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. We are talking today with Dr. Marlin and Dr. Wright, who are from the Poison Control Center. And we talked a little bit before the break about what to do if your child ingests something and how to call the poison control, what to kind of recognize and be able to tell them. Um, And now we're going to move a little bit into some other things that your children may encounter this summer. But if you have any questions or comments for them, we would love to hear from you. Give us a call at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or you can always send us an email as well to kids at mpbonline.org. So one of the things we talked about um, actually on the radio a couple of weeks ago was vaping. And we talked about, you know, obviously the concerns as a pediatrician of potential lung damage, potential addiction. Uh, But we know, too, one of the things we talked about is kids can get into adults' vaping fluid um, or teenagers' may act, you know, who knows what teenagers may do with the vaping fluid um, and how how there could be some potential harm for that. Um, and uh, one of the other things that we had mentioned too, especially with the medical marijuana recently being passed, that's another potential <clears throat> complication we may be seeing soon. So real quick, if you could tell us about some of the potential harms with vaping fluid and what to do if you suspect that your child may have gotten into it. So that's a great point, Dr. McLeod. So we do field a lot of calls on the vaping um, solutions. Um, First and foremost, there's nicotine that's on the market. The biggest problem with these cartridges are their high concentration of nicotine. So if a child, a young child were to ingest this, um, you could easily quickly see um, nausea, vomiting, and then it could progress to be even more severe with seizures. Um, So a lot of those patients have to go in just because the nicotine can be so concentrated. Now, the the bigger problem is when you look in other vaping solutions and how these are made, there's nobody regulating these. So you truly don't even know what's in a lot of these um, products, and we certainly don't know the long-term complications and risk associated with them since they're um, much newer to the market than cigarettes and other tobacco products. Um, There was a study that came out of the University of Mississippi in Oxford um, back in 2020 that just... They pulled 25 of the substances throughout the state. They were specifically CBD products. Not all of them were vaping. But they they pulled these substances and and did testing on them. And what they found is only three of the 25 products actually were within 20% of what the label said. So that means a lot of them didn't have the product that was in there. And then some of them had more than what the product label said it should have. Also, what they found is four of the products out of the 25 actually had synthetic cannabinoids in them, and three of them actually had THC, which could be, pro- which is also marijuana, and that could be problematic for somebody who has to take a drug test um, or has no intent on getting high off these products. So the biggest issue with them is, is we truly don't know what's in them, and, and we have had situations where teenagers especially have gotten into these substances and... Um, had psychotic episodes um, or just other kind of scary problems for their family to watch, um, and they've had to be admitted to the hospital. Um, another area that we're seeing are gummies, and, and Dr. Marlin can speak even more about the gummies and, and kind of what we're seeing with that. Yes, yeah, so just to, to amplify, you know, what Kristen said, I, I break it down in kind of two categories. You have adults that use vaping, you know, in, in the in that form, it is a form of harm reduction. I think very few people would disagree that on a one-to-one basis, you know, vaping is 
is less harmful than pyrolysis, like actually smoking a cigarette. The problem is, is a lot of these things are poorly regulated. <clears throat> so a lot of these, uh, these cartridges that come with the vaping can, you know, these things are, can be made in garages. Uh, they're sold in the black market, especially when you start talking about the ones that are basically black market cannabis with THC in them. Um, and some of those oils have caused a lot of issues and severe lung injury that they've used in those cartridges. Um, as far as the regulated ones, the biggest issue, Christian pointed out, is that they're highly concentrated. Um, and nicotine can be lethal, especially in a, in a small child. I mean, it can go away to paralysis and respiratory depression and seizures. Um, so that's the biggest issue with the regulated ones. Um, and again, the unregulated ones, you just don't know what's in it. So those are, you know, um, much more unsafe. And then Kristen also pointed out, even with the ones that are heavily regulated, we, we don't yet know, enough time has not yet passed to know all the potential long-term consequences with vaping. Um, that being said, it still appears to be a form of harm reduction versus a cigarette. The biggest issue, in my opinion, with this is how it's been marketed kind of uh, unilaterally at kids, getting you know, like a higher incidence of it. So more and more kids are vaping again or using nicotine again because of vaping, which is problematic. For sure. Um, Dr. Marlon, what, you know, with the medical marijuana recently being approved, and I know it's in the works, so we don't have all the details and everything worked out, but what are some potentials, uh, potential harms that y'all are expecting to potentially see? Like, um, I'm not exactly sure what all will be prescribed at, with medical marijuana, um, but edibles are a big thing. Um, or what, what do we expect? Do y'all expect more calls with kids getting into this? I mean, I guess that's kind of a silly question because we assume that probably will, but what are some potentials that y'all are worried about? Yeah. I mean, first of all, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, where, wherever you stand on the, the, the legal status of cannabis, um, every state that has legalized either, you know, recreational or medicinal cannabis has invariably seen an increase in pediatric exposure. So that has happened, like, time and time again. Um, now, there have been no deaths. There's, like, one case report that's been heavily, you know, um, associated but not, not causative of any form. Um, but it, it does, like, you know, if a kid gets enough of it, it will render them basically almost comatose. We've had to intubate children for, um, you know, injections to make sure we protect their airway, make sure they breathe. Um, so we will see more of that. That's, that's just an unfortunate consequence of it becoming more widespread. Um, and so we, we just have to kind of gear for that. I think the biggest issue that we need to, to look into is trying to effectively package these things in a way that, you know, they, they're not candy, but they look just like candy, so there's the problem. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I, I worry about that. But I know the health department's working on all of that right now, and hopefully we can have some some pretty strict guidelines and regulations, which I know they will. So, um, We're talking today of, with Dr. Marlin and Dr. Wright. They are from the Poison Control Center. So if you have any questions or comments for them, we would love to hear from you. Give us a call this morning at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 672 7464 so let's get into some of the summertime things, because I know that is another big question that y'all get a lot about. Um, and one of the things that you mentioned, which I had not even really thought about, but that makes total sense, is like the tiki torch candles and or oil, like the tiki, 
the oil that goes in the tiki torches or the candles and all the different things that you may see lying around the pool or the lake or wherever it may be you're, you're celebrating this summer. So tell us a little bit about some of the complications with that. So um, that certainly is something that we'll see more of as more and more people are enjoying being outside and, and swimming in the pools. And um, the biggest problem with the, the tiki torch oils and lighter fluids is they have hydrocarbons in them. So basically what that means is it's kind of similar to gasoline or kerosene, but it's very slick substance. So for kids, a lot of times um, they'll ingest it and it's easy for them to get in the lungs. And then they basically get like a chemical pneumonia almost. Um, and so unfortunately when they taste it they taste that it tastes yuck and that usually causes them to inhale it um so uh, unfortunately we have circumstances or situations every year where we have to intubate children and just let their lungs heal from it um and and so it really is important that you keep these out of the reach of children because a lot of times they look like they're in beverage cups i know we were at a party not that long ago and my 18 month old kept going to reach for it and so it was something that me, even knowing what it was, knew that we needed to move it and kind of hide it out of his sight. And in, in addition to that, certain certain tiki torch fuels, uh, along with chafing dishes, will use use methanol, which is a, a toxic type of alcohol that can make you quite sick. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's another big risk with the tiki torch fuel. Yeah. I guess, I, I, knew, I mean, you know, I never really thought about that because you just think about, watching them burn but the oil if you don't put it up they definitely can get into that so I'm glad y'all brought that up that's not one thing that I hadn't even thought about and I'm sure there's plenty of people out there listening that hadn't thought about that as well so um, we have another caller so we will go to Steve who is in Olive Branch hey Steve what's up this morning uh, I think we lost him Steve give us a call back if you can we'd love to hear from you um, so uh, another thing that we talked about uh, the summertime is chlorine tablets. And I, I grew up with a pool, so I remember like when my dad would get the chlorine out and he'd open that bucket and it is just so strong. <clears throat> and so you had mentioned y'all get some calls about chlorine as well. Tell us a little bit about what chlorine can do and why it's so important to keep that out of reach. So certainly chlorine um, is one that it can produce um, a gas like chlorine gas. And so if you open that container in an enclosed space um, or stand directly over it and you have these concentrated tablets, it's possible for that to basically burn the, the throat and the respiratory tract. Um, it's usually something it burns the patient or the, the caller n- notices it immediately and, and seeks fresh air and, and usually does okay and just may have some voice um hoarseness or some some throat pain for it now where you you can really get problematic is if a patient were to be in enclosed space not be able to get out or if they had a history of asthma or COPD or some other lung condition and then it can be even more problematic for those patients so it's important that you use caution when you open one of those containers um, leave it in an open air space and try not to stand over it when you first open that container Everything she had said, I mean, pretty much that covers pretty much everything with chlorine. I would add, like, you, you know, you generally want to keep these in a in a in an area with low humidity. There's humidity against those chlorine tablets. Um, it can release chlorine, which again, when you open the open the the um, uh, the container, you want to make sure you stand back, um, make sure you do it in a ventilated, well ventilated space. Because again, the biggest issue is it can kind of induce. Um, 
breathing problems in a normal person, but if you have COPD or asthma or like a reactive airway, it can you know put you in um, severe distress quite quickly. Yeah, I guess would wearing a mask when you open that would that be helpful at all? Uh, no, probably un- unlikely. I mean, especially when you're talking about like just uh, you know like the little masks we- we've had with COVID and stuff like that. No, probably probably not. Probably wouldn't make that much of a difference. Yeah. Okay. No. We're talking today with the Poison Control Center. So if you have any questions or comments, give us a call this morning at one eight seven seven MPB Ring. That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. We'll continue talking about that. We're going to talk some about snakes because I know that's another big question that we get a lot of questions about, um, and what to do if you have a snake bite. We're also going to talk some about plants and berries and different things that you may encounter and fireworks as well. So if you have any questions about those or any type of topic, we would love to hear from you. Give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 672 7464 And we'll be back after the break. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. This is Southern Remedy, kids and teens. To take part in today's show with your questions or comments, call 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or you can email the show, kids at mpbonline.org. Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. We're talking today with Dr. Wright and Dr. Marlin, who work at the Poison Control Center. We talked some about what to do with medication ingestions. We talked some about chlorine and tiki torch oil that you may encounter and vaping fluids. Now we're going to hit a little bit more about snake bites because I feel like snake bites is always a lot of questions about that. Um, there's lots of old wives tales about what to do with a snake bite, I feel like, and um, maybe some questions about what you should do if you have a snake bite, because not all snakes are poisonous, and when should you be worried? So we're going to talk some about that. If you have any questions or comments about snake bites or about any of the things we've talked about or anything in general, we would love to hear from you. Give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring that's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Or you can always send us an email as well to kids at mpbonline.org. So let's talk about snake bites. Um, so Dr. Marlin, tell us about what snakes, if if any, should people be concerned about if they get bit by a snake? Uh, I mean, in general, I think, you know, unless you're a herpetologist, you should probably have you know, some concerns for any snake that, that bites you. Um, uh, if you if you're well aware that the snake's not venomous, you know it's less of a concern to us. However, you know we try to again 
be pretty conservative. And so, you know, we treat every bite as it's venomous um, until we can prove that it's not. Um, so that's kind of the start. I don't, I don't want anyone getting the bad information. Like, I, didn't, I didn't think it was venomous, so I didn't get health care. And so now, you know, I've got a uh, deformed finger. Um, so that's the first thing, just assume it's venomous and then like, let us figure it out unless you know for a fact it's not venomous. Um, in Mississippi, we have uh, several different species of venomous snakes. Um, that being said, the most common ones, we'll just keep all rattlesnakes together, even though we have multiple species of rattlesnakes, um, copperheads, and moccasins. So those are the big ones. So I know a lot of times um, people will come in with, like, they'll kill the snake and they'll bring the snake into the ER with them? <laughs> or sometimes they'll take pictures of the snake? I mean, do you recommend doing that? To me, that just sounds like you're asking for more trouble if you're hanging around, if it's already bitten you. Um, right. But does does that helpful? Is that something that y'all need? No. So under no circumstance do we need the snake. Um, <laughs> in fact, I strongly recommend not messing with the snake, especially the snake's already bitten one person. Um, I, I, you know, I don't, even, unless you have strong reasons uh, to kill it, I, I just leave them alone. Um, that being said, if you can't identify the snake or get a picture of the snake, that actually is helpful um, just because of the, the disparity and how, how venomous some of these snakes are. Like in general, rattlesnakes tend to be more of a problem for us than, than moccasins or um, copperheads. So it does help if you can get a picture of it or help, you know, tell us what it looked like, help identify it. Um, but we definitely don't need the snake. Yeah. But don't recommend hanging around the snake just no. to get the picture. No. We also don't recommend, um, we have some very sweet people in the state of Mississippi who will call us and offer to send us a snake that they've caught that is venomous. Um, and it's very kind hearted. Um, they w think that we make the antivenom for the state of Mississippi. We don't. Please do not catch a snake um, to send to us to make the antivenom. I, we very much appreciate your intentions, but we do not make the antivenom. We, we purchase it. So if somebody gets bitten by a snake, what do you recommend doing? Um, I know lots of people will talk about should they, you know, wrap it or um, try to create some kind of splint or something like that. What what should somebody do? Because there's lots of old wives' tales about what you need to do if you get bit by a snake. So, so kind of tell us what needs to happen. So in general, when you're talking about water moccasins, the rattlesnakes, um, copperhead bites, and so these don't include animals not native to Mississippi and, and doesn't necessarily include the coral snakes either, um, which is native to Mississippi, we don't recommend using a venom extraction kit. Um, we also don't recommend putting any heat or cold compress on it. Just um, stay, remain calm as best as you can, um, and then seek treatment at the nearest emergency department. Um, most of the time, it's not going to be something that is, um, is, is, you have time to get to an emergency de um, department. It's not going to be um, something that you only have 30 minutes unless you have an allergic reaction. Um, we also don't recommend a tourniquet. Um, just leave it alone, keep it clean, keep it in a neutral position and get to the nearest emergency department. Yeah, and we say neutral, what we mean is kind of at the level of the heart. You don't want the, the extremity over the head, which would increase blood return to your heart. And you don't want it, like, hanging down either because that just kind of concentrates the venom uh, in that limb, which could lead to more tissue damage. 
So just kind of keep a level of a heart, you know, try to keep it immobilized. And like Kristen said, you know, try to stay calm. I understand that's difficult a lot of the time, especially after being bitten uh, by a venomous snake. But, you know, the lower you can keep your heart rate, the less that venom that's going to get pumped around. Um, so just try to stay calm, keep a level of heart, and seek medical care. And they certainly can be painful. So it's not uncommon for people to come in and say that they are in pain. Um, it, and it, it often will swell. Um, so those are kind of the big two things to, to be on the lookout for, what you might could expect en route to the hospital. We're, we're talking today with uh, Dr. Wright and Dr. Marlin from the Poison Control. We're talking right now about snake bites, but if you have any questions about any type of thing, we would love to hear from you. Give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. So I think another question a lot of people have about if you do get bitten by a snake and say um, you live in a small rural town, what should you do? But should you go to the nearest hospital or should you bypass that and go to a bigger city such as like maybe a, somewhere on the coast or Jackson, Tupelo, some of the places that have some bigger hospitals? Um, what would y'all recommend? Because we've got a lot of rural small towns in Mississippi. Listen, you'll take that or you start? Sure. I mean, I don't mind. Um, so we always recommend the nearest hospital. Um, the closest care that you can get is always going to be the best. Um, a lot of times the antivenom is not, it is time sensitive to an extent, but it's not something that you need the minute you walk in the ER. So if you have an ER that it doesn't have an available, they'll work with another ER to either borrow some from that hospital or then send you to a higher level of care. So we always recommend first and foremost, go to the nearest. That way they can take care of you if anything else were to happen and kind of triage from there. Um, believe it or not, not all snake bites do require antivenom. Um, so sometimes they may even just observe you to see what your symptoms look like and how it progresses and then make a decision from there if you need to be admitted um, and then if you need antivenom as well. Yeah, I can't stress that enough. And that, that goes for really any medical problem in general. Um, you know, if the nearest place is the best place to go. Um, because a lot of people, I feel like, especially with snake bites, they get worried that they're not going to have the antivenom. And, you know, what what should they do? Should they just drive on to Jackson? Or I, we'll have people call us that are having chest pain that live an hour away, but they, they want to wait till they come to Jackson. And I'm, no, go to your nearest place. Uh, because, you know, like you said, the closest care is the best care. And they will make sure that you get what you need. So always go to your closest hospital um, for really any situation. Situation, but especially snake bites too. And you can always absolutely. call. Oh, go ahead, Dr. Marlin. I was just going to say, I mean, absolutely. Because I mean, the, the, you know, of the few fatalities I've, I've witnessed over my time, and not in Mississippi, this is back when I was uh, in Denver. I mean, the few fatalities we had were almost, I mean, they were all from a, a severe allergic reaction, like immediately after after the bite. I um, mean, in those situations, it is good to have any venom, but that's not the major problem at the time. And so, again, the thing that, that could, the only potential thing that could kill you would be the allergic reaction. So, you want to get to any healthcare facility as soon as possible to try to mediate for that. And then, you know, after they, after stabilization and everything else, then we can worry about getting the anti venom um, later. So, you know, definitely go to the, the nearest uh, healthcare facility. We've got Don on the line. He's in Mobile and has a question about snakes. What's going Hello. on, Don? Oh, uh, 
I came across what I believe was a coral snake, but it didn't fit all the descriptions that I looked up on the Internet. Are there different kinds of coral snakes? Yeah, there there are. There are three, three main species. Um, in the southern U.S., you've got the, you know, the typical one in, in Florida, uh, Alabama, Mississippi. There are two smaller species that are primarily um, – Honestly, I know one's in Texas, but I'm not I'm not a herpetologist, so I'm not quite sure of the other one. I believe it's also in Texas, but in the much smaller numbers. They tend to be less venomous uh, than the traditional coral snake. And as far as what they look like, I believe one is a little more brown. Uh, but, I, again, I'm not a herpetologist, but I do know there's a couple different species. So they, they might not all have that distinct uh, yellow, black, red uh, coloring pattern. Well, well this one fit the, uh, the the rhyme about uh, friend of Jack and uh, kill a fellow. He, he, yeah. he fit that description as far as his rings, but he, it was like he was skinnier looking, much skinnier looking than the coral snake that I've, I've looked at on uh, on the Internet. And I wondered if there was uh, another species in this area in Mobile. <clears throat> but uh, either yeah, way, they're kind of scary. Possible. Because they can be quite small, uh, especially some of the other the other two species are, are even smaller than the, the traditional coral snake. They're not really super uh, aggressive either. Usually, from not what not at all. Almost every almost every envenomation we've had has been from someone handling handling them. They don't they have a different they don't strike quite like pit vipers do. Right, so you really have to handle them to get to become envenomated. Do they have uh, an anti-venom for coral snakes? They do. Um, it is currently being uh, remanufactured by Pfizer. So for several years, we didn't have, well, we had one, but it was expired. They kept kind of extending the expiration date on a lot from 2001. Um, well, we are now, is now. Sorry, go ahead. I was just saying, Pfizer, the, a company, is now making more uh, coral snake anti-venom. Okay. Okay. I appreciate the information. I, I was uh, kind of curious about that. I, I, I feel good that I identified correctly. Uh, enjoy your show. You guys have a great day. Yeah. Thank you so yes, much, sir. Don. We well, appreciate it. And I think Don makes an excellent point. If you're not sure, don't touch the snake. Um, it's actually ex extremely rare for us to have coral snake bites in Mississippi. I think there's only been three that have been reported to us in the last 25 years. So he made an excellent decision to not um, pick up the snake and risk an envenomation. If you have any questions about anything for the poison control, we would love to hear from you. We're going to take our last break, but we still have plenty of time. So please give us a call this morning at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 672 7464 
This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. We've been talking with Dr. Marlin and Dr. Wright from the Poison Control Center. We've got some time left, so if you have any questions or comments, give us a call at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. So real quick, Dr. Marlin, you mentioned that the deaths that you have seen from snake bites are related to anaphylaxis and an allergic reaction. I know there's probably not a good answer for this but just for people out there listening um is there a way to know if you could be allergic to it um does this happen more if it's like a second snake bite as opposed to a first snake bite which is when most allergic reactions happen at at the second exposure um i was just going to see if you could elaborate on that a little bit more yeah absolutely yeah so the more you've been envenomated you have a higher risk of, of anaphylaxis um and then, you know, especially people that handle snakes. So if you have a pet snake or around snakes in general, work at a zoo, um, pet store, uh, for whatever reason, if you're around snakes enough, uh, you can also be sensitized and have a higher risk of, of anaphylaxis. Um, that being said, you, you know, again, you don't have to ever be exposed to anything. If you get a large enough venom exposure, um, you can still have something very similar to anaphylaxis, which we just call anaphylactoid reaction, that can be as severe as anaphylaxis. Yeah, so really no way to know if you're going to be one of those unlucky people, so the best is just... Right, just... but it is important to note that if you have been envenomated in the past, you do carry a higher risk of having a severe allergic reaction. Yeah, I think that's definitely good to know because a lot of people probably don't even think about that. Um, but typically, if you're going to be bit by a snake, you're probably going to be out doing some similar activities in the future, so that's something to keep in mind. Uh, we'll go to our next caller, Christina, in Gulfport. Good morning, Christina. Good morning. How are you? Good. What's going on this morning? Well, I was just curious. I have an EpiPen that I use for wasp bites, and uh, I go out in the woods a lot and hike, and if I am bitten by a snake... Since I have the tendency to have allergies from bite, uh, allergic reactions from bites, would an EpiPen do any good? Oh, uh, potentially, it could potentially do. You know, it could potentially do you some some benefit. I, I don't think there would be much harm in it. Um, uh, if you start, I would I would wait to I wouldn't do it prophylactically, meaning like I wouldn't do it before you had symptoms. If you start experiencing, you know, uh, shortness of breath, wheezing. The typical things you get with a with a, a severe allergic reaction, I would I would you know administer it. Now whether or not how well it's going to work, it's difficult to say. We talk about uh, wasp stings. That's a very small amount of venom you're exposed to, and you've obviously been sensitized to that uh, previously. With snakes, you're exposed to a lot more venom, and so it's hard to say that you're going to get enough epi in somebody to to counteract that. What you really do need is the anti venom, um, but it could help. Um, you know, in the in the interval period uh, between getting bit and getting to a healthcare facility, right? Because where I hike is about an hour away from the nearest hospital or healthcare. Yeah, yeah. I think okay. if you were ever if you ever bitten and started to have symptoms, I would I would probably use the EpiPen. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you for that call. Yeah. 
Um, we got a little bit of time left, so if you have any questions, give us a call at one eight seven seven MPB Ring. That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. So with our little bit of time left, we'll we'll talk a little more about summertime encounters. And one of the things that y'all mentioned you get calls about is kids like eating certain plants, berries, mushrooms, um, which I, I'm sure happens all the time. So tell us a little bit about what to do if that if you do encounter that with your children or grandchildren this summer. So um, certainly we do see a lot of that just as kids spend more time outdoors in the summer months. Um, the the bi biggest thing that we need um, when you call is to know what type of plant it is. Now, I know that's hard for a lot of people, um, but there are apps available that you can download for your phone now where you can actually scan plants and berries um, to actually see what the identification is. So that's always something that is helpful um, as well as the amount. Um, a lot of the plants and berries, certainly not all, um, some of them can have very significant side effects, but a lot of them are going to be more um, GI-related, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. Um, but certainly if, if a child or a dog or an, an adult were to get into it, certainly call so we can um, specifically identify um, you know, what, what exactly it is and then make better recommendations um, for that. Certainly mushrooms are the same way. Um, there are some that are very dangerous. Um, some just cause some some GI effects. So um, it's always best if if you can see mushrooms to make sure kids avoid them, um, as some of them can't even be lethal. Yeah, I remember always being told that as a kid to avoid the mushrooms. So I, I still to this day am like super careful around mushrooms, even with little kids, with dogs, with everybody, just because. I, we were terrified of kid as kids because our parents preached. I grew up in the country, so it was preached to me to avoid the mushrooms. Um, we've got another caller, Randy, in Philadelphia. Hey, Randy, what's going on? Hello. Um, I'm in my early 60s, and I can remember back like in the 70s, uh, there was a cutter snake bite kit, and it was in a little, uh, you used the container you know for like a suction on the on the on the bite and i was wondering if anybody makes a uh a snake bite kit that you could you know put on the tractor or you know take it with you you know in your four-wheeler or whatever and just you know if there was one even available so uh, i appreciate the uh the topic today and y'all have a good one i'll hang up and listen to the answer thank you bye-bye yes, yeah, so those kits have been pretty much proven ineffective. Um, you know, one of the problems is when we talk about snake bites, when the snake bites you, in general, that that the thing kind of goes into the, to the the skin, the fat overlying the muscle, and gets injected, and that gets basically spread out quite quickly. Um, and in reality, there's no really good way to suck that out. Any kind of, you know. Uh, any way to do that is not effective, and you're not going to get near enough venom out, and there's just more, really more of a risk of infection trying to, you know, make the incision and try to suck it out, um, which, again, you can't do. So there's only risk involved with really no benefit. Um, likewise, you can't electrocute it. There's an article in Outside Magazine back in the late 90s where they said that, oh, you know, in a lab, you can electrocute the venom, and it uh, neutralizes it or destroys it is more accurate. Um, but you can't do that in humans. You can't, you can't shock it without causing a lot of harm. You're definitely not going to shock yourself enough to destroy the venom. You're just going to electrocute yourself. Um, and so that's all these, all these uh, 
alternative methods of trying to, to deal with the venom have been proven time and time again just to be more of a risk for you. And so really all we want you to do is, is again, to, to keep that limb immobilized, you know, try not to move it, keep it level with your heart, uh, and get to a healthcare facility. Yeah. That's some good advice. So uh, we appreciate y'all so much for coming on today. Uh, I think this has been very helpful, especially as kids are about to be out for the summertime and going to be outside playing more, maybe visiting grandparents more. And hopefully everybody um, has been a little informed with this. So tell us the number real quick once again for the poison control. Sure. So it's 1-800-222-1222. Um, and we are available 24-7, 365 days a week. So please don't hesitate to call if you need us. Yeah. And like we said earlier, it is not a reflection on your parenting or grandparenting. If you have to call poison control, I think that was a great point that you brought up. Um, there's going to be no judgment if you call. It is a confidential call. So if there is something you're concerned about, please, you know, always err on the side of checking on it and making sure everything is okay Um, because I'm sure y'all get a ton of those calls a day where you're able to just say hey everything's fine Um, and if that gives you some reassurance so uh, I appreciate you saying that and you can google that phone number too all you have to type in is poison control and it pops up right away Uh, but I recommend I tell parents at their checkups to write that number down um, and put it in the refrigerator especially if they're going out of town or maybe they're going out and they have a babysitter or grandparents are coming to keep the kids so that that number can be found easily um but you know it's good to just have as a parent too because it can happen to anybody so i really appreciate y'all coming on today thanks dr marlin and thanks dr wright thank you for the opportunity Yeah, and if there was something that you had a question about, you can always send us an email as well to kids at MPB Online, and we will get back to you. This has been Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. It's a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and Think Radio, and is funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center and generous support from listeners like you. Today's show is engineered by Jay White. I'm Dr. Morgan McLeod. Join us next Thursday at 11 for Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. And stay tuned for NPR's Here and Now coming up next on MPB Think Radio.